Some people are famous as a result of their accomplishments. We might think of Olympic athletes or movie stars. Some are infamous. That is, they are known not for their accomplishments, but because of their wrongdoing. Jesse James, Al Capone, Jack the Ripper, to name only a few. Well, this morning, we consider a king who was notorious for his wrongdoing. That's King Ahab. The key verse is 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, which characterizes the reign of Ahab. 1 Kings 16, 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So our theme this morning is lessons from Ahab's sinful reign. Lessons from Ahab's sinful reign. Begin by looking at the summary of Ahab's reign, the extent of his sinfulness, for it tells us in verse 30 that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, but the words more than all who were before him. Now, those of you... <coughs> Those of you who are astute and paying close attention as we work our way through 1 Kings will notice that we have skipped 1 Kings 15.25 to 16.28. You may be wondering why. Well, last week we ended with the death of Asa in the southern kingdom. Now the scene changes back to what is going on in the northern kingdom. And during Asa's reign in the south, there were seven different kings that reigned in the north. All seven of them were wicked. There was Nadab, 1 Kings 16, 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There was Basha, 1 Kings 15, 34. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's Elah, there's Zimri, 1 Kings 16, 18. He committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we have Omri, of which it is said in verse 30 of chapter 16, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord with these words more than all who were before him. So we have all these evil kings, and then comes Omri, and he did evil more than all that preceded him. And now we're brought to Ahab. And in 1 Kings 16, 29, it says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 32 years. However, we do not want to miss out on the fact that the kingdom is growing worse and worse. There is a downward spiral that is taking place in the northern kingdom. This is best seen in the summation accounts. Note what is said of Omri, verse 25. He did more evil than all who were before him. So up until that point, no one was as evil as Omri was. So one might think that the nation had gotten to its rock bottom. One might think that things couldn't get much worse than they were under Omri. After all, there was no one in the entire north that had ever been as evil as Omri was. It's a pretty poor state to be in, all to find that Ahab is going to be even worse and more wicked still. For it tells us in verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So that would include his father, 
Omri. So as we think about that basic truth, some observations we want to make. First, unchecked sin grows worse and worse. Sin is like a cancer that spreads and grows. Thus, repentance is extremely important. For if people don't change, if people don't repent, it isn't just a maintaining of the status quo. But there is a decline. There is more and more evil that is taking place. Things getting worse and worse and worse. Evil spreads. Evil promotes itself. Evil gets worse and worse. The second observation is to note that wickedness is relative or can be seen in degrees. Not all people are as wicked as others. There are degradations of wickedness as evidenced in the fact that Omri was worse than all that went before him and then Ahab is worse than Omri. We can understand, or at least we need to understand, that there are definitely leaders who are worse and more evil than others. And it's important to maintain that distinction so we understand the days and age in which we live. Adolf Hitler was a uniquely evil individual in his opposition to Christianity and then in the barbaric crimes that he committed and tried to extinguish an entire race of people, namely the Jewish people. Adolf Hitler was truly evil. And I say that because we live in a day of hyperbole, and unfortunately, sometimes we hear people that are talking about political leaders and putting them in the same category as Adolf Hitler. We have not seen up until this point, anyone who comes close to the kinds of evil that Adolf Hitler did, and it's important that we make that distinction, that we're able to understand evil in its degrees, in its progression, in its development. One must keep perspective on life. But what is before us is not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. This is not an overestimation of Ahab's wickedness. This is genuine. This is true. This is God's perspective on the matter. Things were really terrible in the time of Ahab. It's a statement of a new low that is being manifested in the northern kingdom. Things were really bad. So one might wonder, what made things so bad? Why was Ahab viewed by God as more wicked than any king that went before him? What was unique, if you will, about Ahab? And in the particular period of time that he reigned. That's what we want to focus on this morning. And it leads us to the next section. That is the spouse 
of Ahab's reign. All these start with an S this morning. The first was the summary of Ahab's reign, now the spouse of Ahab's reign. It was bad enough that Ahab did all the sins of Jeroboam, verse 31, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Okay? Uh, Jeroboam was wicked. If you remember, he is the one who started the false worship in uh, the northern kingdom. He made those bulls and told the people to worship these bulls as God and that he attributed the work of God to these bulls saying that they were the ones that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Well, he continued in all of that worship that was false, that was in opposition to God and that God hated. But now we find that he does something that is even of greater offense and that is that Ahab sinned even more in taking uh, Jezebel as his wife. Look at verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. Now, we are to see that in this downward spiral, in this progression that takes place, the marrying of foreign wives are essential to that decline. The marrying of those that worshipped other and false gods. It goes all the way back to Solomon, if you remember, when we were in 1 Kings chapter 11, and Solomon had gone against the word of God by marrying many foreign women, and the scriptures had said if he would marry foreign women, that way would lead his heart astray. And in fact, it did. For 1 Kings 11, 14 and First uh, Kings 11, 4 and 5 reads, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So here we see these foreign wives that they take away the faithfulness of their husbands to uh, the worship of God and they introduce them to false gods. We find in the text that Jezebel takes the cake. Of all these foreign wives, she's by far the worst. We're introduced, first of all, to her as the daughter of Ethbaal. Her father's name, Ethbaal, means Baal exists or Baal is God. So you can see where the father is coming from and his allegiance to Baal worship. Jezbael, according to the Preacher's Commentary series, means where is Baal? Where is Baal? Now that is kind of a strange uh, phrase, where is Baal, and uh, they understand it to mean that it has the force of one who seeks after Baal, one who is giving themselves to Baal, one who wants a deeper and closer relationship to the god Baal. It speaks of the devotedness of Jezebel, and it certainly is consistent with what we know about her 
actions and character, that that would be a good way of understanding what is taking place. For Jezebel played a very key role in all the evil that Ahab was doing. Uh, Jezebel was we, uh, uh, Jezebel was tremendously devoted to Baal worship, and we can see that in 1 Kings 18:19, if you want to turn there. 1 Kings 18:19. Uh, this is a statement that's made by Elijah. And uh, this is going to be Elijah's uh, taking on the prophets of Baal, if you will. But uh, we want to notice the last statement in 1 Kings 18, 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And then notice this last statement, who eat at Jezebel's table. Who eat at Jezebel's table, which means that she consulted, supported, and subsidized these prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. So they were eating at her table. Uh, whether she ate with them every day, uh, it's hard to say, but she obviously invited them into the palace. Uh, she consorted with them, she listened to them, and she was supporting them. She was subsidizing them. She was taking care of them in the fact that they were eating at her table. So she is promoting Baal worship. Jezebel was also responsible for the deaths of many of God's prophets at this particular period in time. For 1 Kings 18, 13 states, has it not been told by my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? So that simple statement, Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, those are acts that are directly attributed to to Jezebel. It was her idea. It was what she intended. It is what she did. She had God's prophets killed. And Jezebel played a very key role in all the evil that Ahab was doing. And lest you think that uh, I am overstating the case, I invite you to turn once more, this time to 1 Kings chapter 21. You'll see that this is a long account, so we're going to take a couple of weeks working through this, because it's also a glorious account as we see how God reacts and how God intervenes in this evil period of time. But Jezebel played a very key role in all the evil that Ahab was doing. For look at 1 Kings 21, verse 25. It says, concerning Ahab, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. So here is this Ahab. And it says that he sold himself to do what was evil. Ahab bought into all that Jezebel was selling. He entered into, he bought into, he adopted, if you will, the complete character and the worship of Baal. 
Ahab did not merely go along with Jezebel in order to appease her. Right? He's not just simply out of kindness to Jezebel uh, doing the things that she wants to see done, but rather it's he's in full agreement. He has adopted, he's wholehearted. He's all in, all right? He has sold himself uh, to do this evil. And then it says lastly that in verse 25 of chapter 21, Jezebel, his wife, incited. Jezebel was a, a terrible and powerful influence, or she incited, that is, she instigated, she came up with the ideas that Ahab carried them out. And we're going to see that as we unpack these next couple of chapters. But the idea is that she's the force behind. She keeps coming up with all of these wicked ideas, and he puts them into play. Ahab is under the spell, if you will, of Jezebel. She packs the snowballs that Ahab throws. She's behind the scene manipulating it all. And we certainly see that with the Naboth's vineyard and some other things that we will see in the weeks to come. Jezebel and Ahab were the real Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. But far worse than Bonnie and Clyde ever were. All right, that's a, a misnomer. They had a degree of evil that was beyond imaginable. Application. Hear God's warning as to whom not to marry was once again ignored. Once again ignored. That this is typical of these foreign wives. This is typical of the behavior of the kings in the north that they are making all of these marriage alliances and all of them are contributing to the downfall of the nation. It's important, therefore, to realize that Ahab's wickedness was not merely the result of marrying Jezebel. Let me say that again. Ahab's wickedness was not merely the result of marrying Jezebel. You can't blame it all on her. <laughs> she had an incredible negative influence. But the very act of marrying her was wicked in and of itself. It started there. It started when he took her as his wife. He knew what he was getting. And he knew that what the word of God said was, was forbidden for him. So he's already on this downward course. He's now experiencing all that the scripture says that he would. All right, This is the natural outcome. This is what happens when God's word is disobeyed and ignored. It has its consequences, which leads us into the next section, which are specific acts of Ahab's sinfulness described. Specific acts of Ahab's sinfulness described. Verse 32. 
He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Then verse 33, and they had made an Asherah. So he made, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, and Ahab made an Asherah. And then we have God's reaction to Ahab's sinfulness in verse 33. Ahab made an Asherah, and now these words, this is the response, this is the reaction of God. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all of the kings who were before him. That's the assessment. That's the great takeaway. There was no one who angered God as much as Ahab did. So, some application. First, Ahab's wickedness does not go unnoticed by God. God is not indifferent to Ahab's wickedness or his actions. Not only is he not indifferent, he is concerned. And God is very much aware of all the evil that is taking place in and during <coughs> Ahab's reign. As I said, God is not indifferent to that evil. It isn't just as though God is unconcerned about all that is taking place. God is not simply observing what is going on and sitting back and saying, well, who cares? What does it matter? But we find out that God is angered by what is taking place. That's important for us to know. God is not pleased. So one might then ask the question, what's that going to lead to? What's that going to mean? What is going, God going to do as a result of the fact that Ahab has provoked his anger? It also may lead to the question, why doesn't God act? Why doesn't God just immediately step in and intervene and cut it off and bring Ahab's reign to an end that he is deemed unworthy? In the seven kings that we have referred to this morning, remembering that all of them reigned during the 39 years of Asa's reign. So in the north they have seven kings. In the south they have one king. And if you go through, one of the kings only lasted two years. And he's killed and he is replaced. But seven kings. We have Ahab who reigns for 22 years. A lengthy Rain. in a period of time in which God is angered. We might ask, why doesn't God act? Why doesn't God intervene? I've raised those questions for you to think about, or we want to address them 
in the weeks to come. But I want you to, to kind of wrestle with that even as you read this passage. Next week is communion, so we're not going to be in 1 Kings next week. Uh, we are going to be celebrating communion. We'll come back, Lord willing, the next week. And we will seek to begin to answer some of these questions. But I want you to wrestle with those questions because they're relevant for us today. Doesn't God see the evil that goes on around us? Isn't God aware when people are acting unjustly? Did he not know about an Adolf Hitler? Did he not care? Was he indifferent? How does God act and why does God act the way that he does? Those are very pertinent questions for anyone who lives in a time of evil, no matter how relative that evil is, no matter how little or how great. What is God doing is a question that we need to answer, and thankfully, 1 Kings does. For it's easy for us to think that God does not know, or God does not care about all the evil in this world, or the hardships and difficulties that come into our own personal life. We may think that we're escaping God's notice. That's Isaiah chapter 40. Jacob asks the question, doesn't God see? Doesn't God know? Doesn't, isn't God aware? Yes, he is. He's aware. And secondly, does, well, well then does he care? Does he care? And the answer is yes, he was provoked. So we need to see what comes next. Fourthly, the situation of Ahab's reign. The situation of Ahab's reign. During Ahab's reign, there was a total disregard and even flagrant opposition to the word of God. Let me say that again. During Ahab's reign, there was a total disregard and even flagrant opposition to the word of God. The word of God becomes central to the story of Ahab and Elijah and Jezebel. On Mount Carmel, Elijah says, he prays, let it be known that at thy word, at thy word, okay, it was God's word. God's word is central to the understanding of Ahab. And what is central is his disregard and flagrant opposition to the word of God. So now we're giving an example of that. During Ahab's reign, for notice in verse 34, in his days, in his days. So this is a, an example of the kind of evil that's going on in the days of Ahab. In his days, verse 34, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. It says he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates in the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The illustration of a total disregard 
and even flagrant dismissal of God's word is in the rebuilding of Jericho. In the rebuilding of Jericho. Where it says in verse 34, Hiel built Jericho. Hiel was the operative, the one who was over the project of rebuilding the city of Jericho. However, it must be kept in mind that it was at the behest of Ahab that he did so. All right? Hiel builds the city, but he does so out of the instruction of Ahab. We know that from two things. One, it tells us that it's in his days, uh, referring to Ahab, referring to the activity of Ahab. And so now Hiel is working under the authority of Ahab. And then again, later in 1 Kings 22, 39, it says, now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the very house that he built and all the cities that he built. So Ahab is building cities. He is making Israel stronger in his estimation. And Jericho was an extremely strategic city. It was known for its defense and its protection of the kingdom. And so he decides to rebuild Jericho. Hopefully you know the story of Jericho and how it was conquered, it was demolished in the very beginning of the Israelites coming into the promised land. It's the very first city that was attacked. And that city was delivered by an incredible demonstration of God's power and protection for the nation of Israel. It was a battle like none other. I hope you know the story of the Battle of Jericho, but the walls fell as a result of the people walking around the, the city each day for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, shouting trumpets, and the walls simply fall by a miraculous intervention of God. A miraculous intervention of God. And as such, Jericho became a memorial to the power of God and his protection and influence over the nation of Israel. It was a scene that could be visited. You could go and look at the rubble. <laughs> you could take a trip and take your kids and tell them the story of the Battle of Jericho. There it was. This incredible landmark. This memorial. This testimony. This witness to the power of God and his intervention for the nation of Israel. The effect of rebuilding the city was to remove a great witness to the power and grace of God in the nation's history. It would remove a landmark regarding the greatest military victory in their history that had come through a reliance upon God. The walls of the city came tumbling down. I already alluded to, this, to it this morning, but remember that when 
Jeroboam established the false, the false worship in the northern kingdom. He made, it, made uh, golden calves and said regarding these golden calves, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now that was wicked. That was horrific. To take an act of God, the true and living God, and ascribe it to the actions of these calves who were just formed. They were just idols. They could do nothing. They were no gods. But you see the progression that has taken place. You see the downward spiral that at least the deliverance from Egypt is a part of the memory. <laughs> it, it at least is alluded to. It at least is seen as an historical fact. God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now they're taking that and applying it to someone else. But now we move a step further. And that is, it's a wiping away of the very memory of what God has done for the people of Israel. Not ascribing it to someone else, but just removing it from memory at all. Now there is either an unconscious or perhaps a very conscious removal of the witness of God's establishment of the nation of Israel in the promised land. The sight that was the evidence of God's working could no longer be seen with the rebuilding of the walls of the city. That was his flagrant disregard, the high price of disregarding God's word and flagrantly opposing God's word is seen in verse 34. It says, in the days of Hiel, Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation. Here's the price. At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagud. Now at this point, commentators disagree as to precisely what took place when it says that uh, Abraham's, uh, Abiram's firstborn died with the uh, foundation and the uh, second son died at the establishment of the gates. There are two different opinions here. One is that this was a result of their false worship that uh, the Phoenicians made children sacrifices. There is even archeological evidence that they buried children alive in the building of cities for its prosperity. There are some that say this is the result. This is what happens. This is a demonstration of the evil, the wickedness of this Baal worship. And it has resulted in now these deaths of these, these children. The second view is that this is a direct intervention of God and it's God's punishment, and God brings this to pass. Regardless of the way that one sees it, ultimately the point is that it's a violation of God's command that carried a warning with it. Notice 1 Kings 13, 34. 
In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sedgud, according to the word of the Lord. This is in keeping with what God said. God had declared, if this city is rebuilt, the person who rebuilds it is going to rebuild it at the cost of their son. It's clear. It's clear. This is a quotation of Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua 6 gives us the account of the fall of Jericho. And verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of the youngest son shall he set up its gates. Clearly declared what God said would happen. And it should not surprise us that what God said would happen, happens. It happens. It is a demonstration of what occurs when one disregards and flagrantly stands in opposition to the word of God. They are going to suffer the consequences. The book of Isaiah tells us that God announces future consequences of sinful behavior for a reason. According to Isaiah chapter 45, 48, verse 5, it says this, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. In other words, so that it could not be missed that this was God's activity, that this was God's doing, he declared it long before it ever happened. So that when it did happen, they would see God at work. They would see that God was provoked, God was angered, God was upset. God actually did something. God intervened, and he intervened every bit the way he said he would, exactly as he said he would. That is the point. That is the point. God's word was fulfilled, as God's word will always be fulfilled. My word will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and achieve that which I send it to do. But as we think about the application this morning, I want us to focus on this simple truth. God's working can easily be, go unnoticed. God's working can easily go unnoticed, especially if one is ignorant of the word of God. I have to wonder, how many in the time of Ahab associated the death of Hiel's sons with the curse that Joshua had announced on the rebuilding of Jericho. How many people that were alive at that day put two and two together? 
How many connected the dots? How many said, when they heard the news, read the newspaper, if you will, Jericho was rebuilt, Kyle's son dies? How many of the Israelites said, wow, there's God's judgment. There is God's activity. There is God's word fulfilled and brought to pass. One wonders how many people in the time of Ahab would have even known about that curse. Were they so ignorant of God's word at that point that they did not even know that it existed? Here is a very practical and extremely dangerous consequence of the indifference and disregard for the scriptures. If you don't know the scriptures, you will fail to see God at work. One of the reasons that we fail to see God at work is we fail to know the scriptures. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this for a moment. And I, and I know it's kind of hard to do this objectively because I didn't ask you to read this passage ahead of time. But let me just ask the question. If you would have read 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. Let's look at it. In the days of Hile of Bethel, built Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of the youngest son, Segud, period. If that's all that was said, and it did not record according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Could you have put those two things together? Joshua 6 would still be there. The curse would have still been pronounced. The action would have still taken place. But would you have seen it? Do you know your Bible well enough that you can put the dots together? Or does attention have to be drawn like it is in verse 34 so we don't miss it? So we don't, mi don't, we, so we don't miss it. My point is, the better you know God's word, the more you will recognize the activity of God in our present day the more you can put the dots together, the more you can see how God's unfolding purpose is taking place. The very purpose to seeing how God has worked in the past is to help us see how God works in the present. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it reads, now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It was written down for our instruction so we might understand. These are more than just history lessons. There is an old adage that history repeats itself. 
Well, there's a, a sense in which that's true for there are similar events that take place, but we need to realize that history is linear. There is a journey that the people of God are on. And there's an end. Jesus Christ returns. There is an end. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's all these statements about what is going to take place in the future. And these things are written for us to learn, to understand that, yes, God knows, God sees, God is angered, God acts. But can you see it? Do you see the signs of the time? Do you see the outcomes of people's sinful disobedience? Do you see what happens when God's word is disregarded and flagrantly opposed? It's why it's so important for us to know the word of God. We pause with a simple reminder that God's word will be fulfilled. All that he says, he will do. All the prophetic statements are going to come to pass. That's why it's so important for us to know them, even as it was for Israel to know what Joshua had said. Because in Ahab's day, 1 Kings wasn't written. They couldn't look it up. They had to know it. They had to be able to put it together. They didn't. They didn't. Because they had disregarded and flagrantly obeyed, disobeyed the word of God because they were worshiping Baal because they had thrown off their allegiance to God. And so even in what is really a gracious act of demonstrating his activity and disapproval went over the heads of the people or they didn't know it. So two weeks from now, God's going to intervene in an unmistakable way so that it can't be missed. I'm just saying to you, this one's missed. But it's written so we don't miss it. We don't miss it. And only ask the question, how much do we miss now? How much do we not see? How many questions do we have? about God's activity and God's work and God's care because we haven't given ourselves close enough attention to understand how he works and how he moves. God can act. God does act. God will act. We're to have a sphere of anticipation as we move forward in this, this story. Well, we're going to see that, that God is going to act. We also have 
a story that teaches us that God's going to act in the future. We know how this world comes to an end. We know that it does come to an end. We know there's going to be judgment. We know that God's going to be at work at nations and bringing people together and rebelling against the Christ. All of this is revealed to us in the scriptures. May we have the same kind of anticipation that this God who is provoked by evil will deal with it, will address it, will accomplish it. And may we see the need to repent if we've never accepted Christ as our Savior. His word is true. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. The warning is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. To disregard or to flagrantly oppose that truth is going to end up in sheer tragedy. Trust in the Lord Jesus and look at how he is working and what he promises to accomplish in the future. That we might understand the days in which we live. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray for your grace. I pray for your understanding. Lord, help us to give ourselves to your word. That we might know it and that we might be able to apply it, to, to see it in relationship to the events and circumstances of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.